What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly, if you just love this country, fight back. And exposing the woke left. What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through. This is the Josh Hammer Show. This was not just extreme carelessness with classified material, which is still totally disqualified. This is calculated deliberate, premeditated misconduct, followed by a cover-up that included false statements and lies to Congress, the media, and the American people. So that was then. This is now. Look, I read the indictment the day that it came down like so many of you did. I clerked on a federal appeals court. I've read any number of Department of Justice indictments. The feds worked their asses off for this indictment. Maybe some of it is fabricated. Maybe some of it is just flat-out bullshit. If you've been paying any attention to the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the federal prosecutorial apparatus over the past seven, eight years, you know that the feds are not above that. But the way that thing reads is very bad. Very, very bad. They did their homework. They did their diligence. They got Trump's former attorney, Ed Corcoran, to flip. They were able to breach attorney-client privilege in order to do it. Trump's behavior in this indictment looks really, really bad. 31 of the 37 counts for the Espionage Act, obstruction of charges. We'll get into the Espionage Act here in just a second here. But you, you, you can't help but read this indictment. And again, it's all alleged. Yes, it's just the federal government's side, innocent or proven guilty. This is obviously all true. The problem is that for those of us who have been paying attention to the Trump show for years and years now, it is so, so easy to see him acting exactly as he acts in that indictment. I mean, who among us who has not watched Trump's rallies cannot easily picture that guy at his club in Bedminster, New Jersey, waving around sensitive top secret documents about the U.S. government's plans to bomb Iran or whatever, the most secretive nuclear bombing military documents out there to some reporter who, oh, by the way, is obviously wearing a wire. I, I mean, if you can't foresee Trump acting the way that he acts in this indictment, instructing his lawyers to hide the documents, the this, the that, the obstruction, move the documents to the bathroom, to the bedroom, onto the stage in Mar-a-Lago. Then, you know, have, we, have you and I been watching the same Trump show for the past seven years? So the behavior is absolutely positively appalling. It is just absolutely egregious and is made all the more egregious because no matter the validity or lack thereof of the actual Espionage Act as the substantive underlying statute here, he could have so easily avoided this. So easily. I mean, hold aside the fact that there was a give and take between the president and the, and, and the 
National Archives about which documents are personal records, which are presidential records. Yes, there's the Presidential Records Act, a, a 1970s era statute. Trump maybe thought in good faith, maybe he didn't. He thought that he was kind of taking home personal records under that there. But when you have a subpoena, when you, when you have a subpoena from, from a grand jury, you have to abide by that subpoena. And, you know, whether it was Bill Clinton perjuring himself during the Paula Jones, Monica Lewinsky stuff in the late 1990s or Donald Trump now allegedly failing to abide by multiple subpoenas, if I'm not mistaken. And conspiring with his own attorneys and aides, the valet driver, who's also named in this indictment to do so. You're reaching some very, very, very dark places there. Now, here is the other side. The other side is that this whole charade, this whole thing of the sitting president of the United States criminally prosecuting the man that he just defeated and currently stands to quite possibly face again next fall is third world banana republic bullshit. Let me say that again. It is third world banana republic bullshit. This is what happens in Paraguay, Bolivia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Third world countries prosecute and jail their political opponents. The Chavez regime in Venezuela, Castro's Cuba. If you are a patriotic American, if you love the flag, if you love the Constitution, if you love what this country stands for, the people, the spirit, the innovation, the American spirit, all that stuff, you cannot be happy with America going down this path. You simply cannot. And while it is true that the Soros-funded jokester of a prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, was the first one to cross the Rubicon in this respect in late March up in New York City, the fact that this is coming from the federal government, again from the Biden administration, makes it all that much more devastating. And anyone who tells you that this is just coming from Jack Smith, the special counsel, and not from President Biden and his leading henchman, Attorney General Merrick Garland himself, uh, you know, look, uh, as George Strait would sing, I've got some oceanfront property to sell you in Arizona, dude. Give me a break. Give me a break. There is no world in which a prosecution of this magnitude does not come from the president of the United States himself. No world. By the way, incidentally, Jack Smith happens to live, if not mistaken, in the Netherlands. Dude does not even live in the United States. And probably his most famous previous attempt to go after a high-profile Republican politician was the very popular former governor of Virginia, Bob McDonnell. He prosecuted him on very flimsy grounds. That case ended up getting thrown out unanimously, 8-0, to one justice recused, at the U.S. Supreme Court. So apparently Jack Smith, who doesn't even live in the United States. I mean, I, I just can't get over that. I mean, they, they literally could not find a lawyer who lives in this country, apparently, to, to bring this case. But we are going down just an exceedingly dangerous hole here. Again, the Alvin Bragg stuff was easy to dismiss. It's a Soros-funded prosecutor. It's a, it, it amounts to a bookkeeping era with Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels. I mean, like it sounds like a sordid Hollywood film, the cast of characters in that fact sheet up in New York City with the Alvin Bragg indictment. But again, to bring the powers of the federal government, and we saw a glimpse of this with the sirens outside Mar-a-Lago with the men wearing, the G-men wearing the blue FBI 
jackets and Mar-a-Lago last August. We saw a glimpse of it then. That is a harrowing sight is to see a former president trotted into a federal courthouse and indicted 37 counts with enough prospective jail time to last this lifetime and God knows how many lifetimes beyond that. So again, I don't think it matters what your politics are, whether you're a Republican, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Trump guy, you're a DeSantis guy, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Gavin Newsom, who the hell cares? If you are a patriot, this is dangerous stuff. And I've been very open with you guys. Trump is not my preferred candidate heading into 2024. I've been very, very open that I think Ron DeSantis, for many reasons, is the stronger choice on both substantive grounds and on electability grounds. This is a very, very dangerous place to go down. But again, we can't let Trump off scot-free here. Yes, this indictment should never have been brought. It is true that they recovered the documents from Mar-a-Lago last August. So even if Jack Smith, the Flying Dutchman, were to choose to bring this prosecution, he could have easily waited until after November 2024 to not interfere in our politics. All of that is true. The timing is ridiculous. It is overtly politicized from the top. All of that is true. No reason to bring it now. The documents are not there. But again, it is also true that Trump really did do this to himself. He easily did this to himself. You can't just fail to comply with subpoenas. You can't do it. Again, like Clinton perjuring himself in the 1990s. These are things that you cannot do. And allegedly trying to bring in your lawyers to hide the boxes. I mean, what were in these documents, man? I mean, like, why did he want the nuclear secrets so badly? It's not like these were like photo ops with Kim Kardashian from when he, find, when he signed the first step back jailbreak bill or anything. So we will see how this plays out. For present purposes, he has not gotten a discernible boost in the 2024 Republican presidential primary polling. He has not gotten a hit either. The common wisdom, which I think happens to be correct in this place, is that the regime is largely targeting Donald Trump like this, Alvin Bragg to Jack Smith and so forth, because they want him to be the nominee. Because they want him to be the nominee because he is indeed that much easier to beat than Ron DeSantis and perhaps even some of the others. What I fear is that Republican primary voters are all too easily walking into that very, very easily foreseeable trap. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The Josh Hammer Show. 
I don't know what he was doing. I know he was on the board. I found out he was on the board after he was on the board. And that was it. So in other news, quid pro Joe was added again. You remember Joe Biden. You remember Hunter Biden. You remember Burisma. All these stories from yesteryear that are suddenly coming back again. Well, why are they coming back again? Last week, Chuck Grassley, the senior senator from Iowa who turns 90 years old in three months, and that is relevant, I will say why that's relevant, claimed that he had seen an FBI document detailing claims from a confidential source that the source who works for Burisma, who actually, as it turns out, owns Burisma, had bribed both Joe and Hunter Biden in 17 separate recorded phone conversations to the tune of anywhere from 5 to $10 million. Who is the source? The source is the founder and owner of Burisma Holdings, a man by the name of Mikola Jlochevsky. Now, to go back to Chuck Grassley, the fact that Chuck Grassley is the one that is claiming that he has seen this document and is pushing for the FBI to release an unredacted or at least a less redacted version. The fact that it's Chuck Grassley is deeply meaningful. Why do I say that? Because Chuck Grassley is an institutionalist. Dude is turning 90 years old in three months. He has been chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He has served on all the relevant committees. He has been in Congress for 14 years longer than I have been alive. He was first elected to the House in 1975, to the Senate in 1981. Before Orrin Hatch, the late senator from Utah, passed away, you could argue that there were no two more institutionalists in the Senate GOP caucus than Chuck Grassley and Orrin Hatch. So this is not like this is some young kind of up and coming, swaggering, swashbuckling MAGAite who is raising these allegations of outright quid pro quo corruption between Joe Biden, Hunter Biden and Burisma. This is Chuck Grassley. That in and of itself is a very big deal. Well, what is it actually claimed that the quid pro quo was? So recall that a few years ago, Joe Biden actually openly admitted that he was having this back and forth back when he was the Obama administration's point man on all things Ukraine. By the way, why the hell is it is Ukraine always popping up in these conversations? What the hell is it about the Slavic corruption in Ukraine that's always there? So back when Biden was the Obama administration's point man in Ukraine, he had this back and forth as to whether to get Ukraine to fire this prosecutor. So Ukraine had a prosecutor who was looking into alleged corruption in Burisma. And that was the context for Mikola Zlochevsky allegedly having 17 phone calls with Joe and Hunter Biden, bribing them to the tune of five to $10 million recalled Hunter in his role on the board of Burisma, because we all know that Hunter Biden, the crack addict who was recently in Arkansas for some paternity suit for a child he fathered out of wedlock. We all know that, that Hunter Biden is an expert in Eastern European Black Sea Sea of Azov energy assets. Give me a freaking break. But Mikola Zlochevsky, a man who is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, or at least used to be at one point, allegedly tried to bribe these Bidens, the father-son duo, to the tune of 5 to $10 million, and then in tune, here's the quo in the quid pro quo, Uncle Joe, who again was Obama's point man in Ukraine, would get Viktor Shokin, who was the Ukrainian prosecutor investigating Burisma, fired. And sure enough, Viktor Shokin was actually fired. Now, again, we're waiting on the actual documentation here. We have not seen the full documentation yet. That is what Chuck Grassley, the esteemed institutionalist from Iowa, 
is currently pressing for on uh, something that the feds refer to as a form FD-1023. Currently, the feds seem to be obstructing it. Surprise, surprise. Christopher Ray, who has been in charge of the FBI since the Trump administration, God knows why Trump never fired Christopher Ray. To my knowledge, by the way, we have seen no indication that he would make any other personnel decisions if he were to regain the presidency than hiring lackluster people like Christopher Ray. Neither here nor there for present purposes, but Christopher Ray and the FBI are obstructing. They are obstructing Chuck Grassley. They are obstructing James Comer and the, and the House Oversight Committee. Comer, back in May, so last month, subpoenaed the FBI for access to this form FD-1023. Apparently, House members were actually able to view redacted parts of the document a couple weeks ago. The point is, the timeline here makes sense. Again, Viktor Shokin, the Ukrainian prosecutor who was investigating Burisma, was actually fired. He was fired. Why was he fired? Why did Joe Biden put pressure on Vladimir Zelensky to fire Viktor Shokin? Well, again, we, we already know that Hunter Biden was getting $10 million or however much it was, a million dollars a year over the course of a few years, so a little less than $10 million, to sit on the board of Burisma. And as the Hunter Biden laptop showed, it was largely for access to the quote-unquote big guy. Joe Biden. So the whole thing stinks to high heaven. Joe Biden last week was seen cackling, just totally dismissing a reporter who had the temerity to ask him a question about what appears to be brazen corruption. Why is no one talking about this? I mean, right wing media has been talking about this. Right wing media has been talking about corruption in Ukraine for so many years now that I'm actually old enough to remember. I mean, do people here even remember what Donald Trump's first impeachment was about? The second impeachment we all remember vividly. It was the aftermath of January 6, 2021. It was kind of silly because he was about to go out of office like just two weeks later. The first impeachment going back to 2019 was over a five to six page PDF transcript phone call between Trump and Zelensky. And if you recall, Trump was threatening to withhold aid to Vladimir Zelensky. And apparently Democrats thought that this was such an outrageous use of the presidential power that they filed articles of impeachment over it. But Trump knew because we already at that time knew enough about Biden's various forays when he was vice president into Ukraine that Ukraine is a deeply, deeply corrupt place. In fact, at the time, actually, many of us defended Trump's actions in that first impeachment by saying that, you know, quid pro quos or attaching more strings to, to foreign aid is actually a good thing, especially when you're in a country as profoundly corrupt as Ukraine is. Why would you not want to attach more strings when it comes to foreign aid? That argument made a lot of sense to me in 2019. So fast forward three to four years to 2022 to 2023, Joe Biden is now president of the United States. He's not the vice president where he was Obama's point man. Hunter Biden is in and out of paternity suits. He's not really involved in any substantial way with, with Burisma at this point anymore. And Joe Biden is still vociferously defending all things Ukraine and opposing, really, any meaningful attempts to attach strings on aid to Ukraine. So I again ask, what the hell is actually going on in Ukraine? That country just seems to pop up over and over again. And what specifically is the Biden vested interest in the year 2023 now in making sure that the U.S. taxpayer continues to fund this seemingly endless boondoggle with no off-ramp 
with no discernible way to end or preclude a potential nuclear conflagration with the Kremlin. Why is he doing this, given the history of Burisma, Hunter Biden, and Chuck Grassley's FD-1023 form request? So we need to get to the bottom of this. We need to, we need to get to the bottom of this immediately. Because if the president is this compromised when it comes to Ukraine, a country that is currently receiving hundreds of millions of dollars of U.S. foreign aid, we are well into the second hundred million dollar category at this point. I think last year we topped around 113 million. If we don't have clarity as to what exactly the president's ties and complicity and involvement in corruption are, in Ukraine specifically, then we are failing as we the people to hold our own government accountable. So I sincerely hope that James Comer and Chuck Raskley can expose this FD-1023 forms. We can see once and for all just how much Mikola Zlochevsky, the oligarch, was actually legitimately bribing Hunter and Joe Biden. Anyone who is quick to dismiss this as frivolous is wrong. This is very serious stuff, given, given especially the United States' current level of involvement in Ukraine and a rapid escalation towards potential nuclear conflagration against Russia. So one of the recurring themes on this show is we talk about the realignment. Well, what is the realignment that has been happening over the past few years and is continuing to happen in American politics? The Republican Party is shifting away from its former benefactors, and the Democratic Party, to an extent, is as well. The Democratic Party, for years and years, has transmogrified itself into the party of the elite, into the party of what the late, great Angela Cotavilla would have referred to as the ruling class. Republicans, by contrast, increasingly, and the exit polls, the demographics, the trend lines all bear this out, are the party of the working and middle class. They are the party of the dude in blue jeans drinking a Coors Light, not a Bud Light, as opposed to the Democrats, who are the party of rosé wine and linen jackets and all that stuff. And what's interesting to me, and the reason I want to flag this again, we've talked about this on this show so many times by now, is that just this past week, the Wall Street Journal which by its very title of the publication is an outlet that speaks for the financial industry, for corporate America, for the Fortune 500, for generally kind of wealthier, affluent, more plugged in, educated people, is really starting to kind of notice the trend lines themselves. So the Wall Street Journal had this long essay entitled How Republicans and Big Business Broke Up. And the essay begins, it's, it's a long, well over a thousand words piece, fairly rare for the journal, to be honest with you. The essay begins, quote, once consider natural political allies, the Republican Party and big business are drifting apart. One sign of their estrangement, GOP lawmakers are weaning themselves off money from corporate political action committees, from corporate PACs. Those corporate PACs were once upon a time the very lifeline. They were the, the blood that pulsated through the arteries and veins of the Republican Party. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, back when I was kind of coming up political age during the Bush administration into the Obama years, I mean, the Chamber of Commerce was anywhere. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce was probably the Republican Party's number one outside friend. That obviously has changed in recent years, and that is rapidly, rapidly changing even more. So a headline that I saw this past Friday from, from Axios actually tallies up the financial damage of the concerted right-wing backlash 
in terms of S&P 500 market capitalization and value to companies like Kohl's, Anheuser, Bush, Target over the past few months as these companies like Target with the tuck friendly children's clothes and Anheuser Bush with obviously the Bud Light Dylan Mulvaney kerfuffle back in April. The total market value plunge, according to this Axios piece, over $28 billion. $28 billion. That is the amount of damage that Americans have doled out to companies that go woke. So the old adage that if you go woke, you go broke, and maybe it's not that old because the whole term woke is not that old, but the adage if you go woke, you go broke is increasingly true. Just this past week, it was Thursday or Friday when the Los Angeles Dodgers, they hem, they haw, they went back and forth as to whether to proceed with this Pride Night event involving an actual legitimate anti-Catholic group of LGBTQI plus minus whatever activists who were actually mocking nuns in the Catholic faith. They ultimately did so. And at least the image that I saw inside of Dodger Stadium there in Los Angeles showed a fairly sparsely attended crowd. You know what was not sparsely attended? The protests outside Dodger Stadium there in Chavez Ravine in Los Angeles, where you saw tons of Catholics holding signs, stop anti-Catholic bigotry, stuff like that. So I actually think that we have really reached a turning point. We, or we have reached an inflection point, I should say, when it comes to what private corporations, what private entities, not just the government, are doing when it comes to overfighting, overwaging the culture war. The government obviously is complicit in this. Biden had that absurd event at the, at the White House where the pride flag, this newfangled pride flag, is no longer just the rainbow. Now they've got the pink, the black, the triangle, some other sort of weird design going on. That flag was displayed front and center at the White House, blatantly violating United States law, by the way, which actually mandates that in a situation like this, when the U.S. flag is next to other flags on government property, that the U.S. flag actually be front and center. So the government is definitely involved in this, but the private sector is the tip of the spear right now. And as this has happened, Republicans are no longer dealing with it. But the split between the GOP and the Chamber of Commerce Fortune 500 wing is actually even deeper than that. Yes, it has to do with the woke issues. It has to do with the fact that these companies are pushing this poison, this civilizational arson, as I refer to it. But it is deeper than that. The business lobby in America, if you look at the issues that they prioritize, it's actually not just cultural issues. They prioritize free trade absolutism. Massive H-1B visa programs amounting to a de facto open borders policy. Recall that, that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has always, always been one of the largest lobbying shops for amnesty when it comes to what to do with our illegal alien population. And as the Republican Party is going through this realignment, really kind of spurred on by Trump in 2016 with the escalator ride down and all that stuff, as the Republican Party increasingly looks somewhat askance, at its one-time policies pertaining to free trade absolutism, pertaining to a, an immigration policy that amounted to the dichotomy of illegal bad, legal good, as Republicans have started to be a little more skeptical of the allegedly unvarnished benefits of open-ended immigration, of globalization more generally, of globalization, financialization, and neoliberalism really more broadly, that also has deeply, deeply accentuated this split 
from the business lobby. The question for the business lobby, for the Chamber of Commerce types, is where do you go, obviously, if not the Republican Party? If the Republican Party is taking a slightly more nationalist populist turn when it comes to economics, if the Republican Party is is wisely and prudentially kind of getting into a more vigorous culture war footing when it comes to critical race theory and gender ideology and all these other various cancers currently afflicting the country. When you have that, but you still have a Democratic Party that has leading lights like AOC and Bernie Sanders pushing effective socialism, I mean, where do you go? Well, it's really not clear. Thankfully, it's not my problem, but it's really not clear where you go if you are the business lobby, if you're the Chamber of Commerce, and you're looking to kind of place your bets. I think for the most part, many of them will ultimately kind of hold their nose and stick it with the Republicans simply because they don't know any better and they are properly scared shitless of the economic policies and punitive taxation that will undoubtedly be passed or would be passed by unified Democratic Party governance. And that, in turn, actually gives Republicans even more leverage. The fact that the Chamber of Commerce actually has, realistically speaking, nowhere else to go because Democrats are so quasi-crypto-socialist in many ways these days, tax distribute, all those sort of policies, means that Republicans should feel emboldened to stand their ground and not capitulate on cultural issues in the face of the business lobby. And of course, there are any number of Republicans who are doing just that. So Ron DeSantis, of course, in Florida, does it time and time again. The Walt Disney Company being the best example. Brian Kemp, to his great credit, the governor of Georgia. You remember when, when Georgia signed that six-week abortion bill and Delta Airlines was, was threatening to move out, Coca-Cola, which is headquartered in Atlanta, all the Georgia-based companies responded to that 2019 six-week heartbeat bill that Georgia signed into law by saying that they would threaten to pull out Hollywood, which actually films a lot of its movies in Georgia due to the tax breaks in place there, was saying that they would no longer film their movies there. But Georgia stood strong. And Brian Kemp actually ended up demolishing David Perdue in his in his gubernatorial primary last year and then cruising, cruising to re-election in what has become a truly purple state over Stacey Abrams, who, for God knows what reasons, has, of course, become a national cause celebre on the far left. So the preliminary data supports the idea that Republicans should not be capitulating to the business lobby. A basic kind of analysis as to where the Chamber of Commerce donation money might go supports the proposition that Republicans should only feel emboldened in not further caving, standing their ground when it comes not just to these culture war issues, but also, crucially, to the economic issues as well, because there is not going to be a realignment on culture issues alone. If the Republican Party is actually going to become a more working class, middle class, it has to move beyond the platitudes of 1990s George H.W. Bush era neoliberalism and more towards the forces of nationalism, populism and what Marco Rubio calls common good capitalism. Whether or not that happens, of course, remains to be seen. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Josh Hammer Show. I was actually abroad last week. I was in the country of Armenia. And if you are out there in the audience thinking, where the hell is Armenia? You are not alone. I remember texting my brother that I was heading over there and he literally texted me back. He said, I don't think I could place on a map (laughs) where Armenia is. So Matthew, if you're listening to this, I apologize for outing you in that respect. But Armenia is a small country population, three to three and a half million people. It is situated to the east of Turkey, to the west of Azerbaijan, to the north of Iran, and to the south of the Republic of Georgia which, of course, prior to Ukraine in 2014, was the former, former Soviet state that Vladimir Putin invaded back in 2008. So they're in a rough neighborhood. It's really neither Europe nor Asia nor the Middle East. It's kind of the crossroads of the world. It's the Caucasus region. And what was I doing there? Well, I was there on a trip sponsored by a group called the Philos Project. The Philos Project started maybe about a decade ago or so to promote primarily American Christian engagement in the Near East and the Middle East, up until this point that has primarily cashed out in terms of trips to Israel. It's a very pro-Israel, philo-Semitic group of primarily U.S.-based Christian activists. But in recent years, the Philos Project has taken a great interest in Armenia. And Armenia, for those of you who don't know these things, is the world's oldest continually existing Christian civilization. They officially adopted Christianity as the state religion in the year 301. That was before Rome, before the Roman Empire abandoned paganism to become Christian. And Armenia is in a very, very difficult spot. Turkey, far too few people know what I'm about to say. It's really horrifying. Turkey genocided one and a half million Armenians during World War I. Of course, this was before it was Turkey, it was the Ottoman Empire, same thing. The Turks in the Ottoman Empire period between the years 1915 and call it 1922 massacred one and a half million Armenians. I went to the Museum of the Armenian Genocide while I was in Yerevan, the capital of Armenia. You learn all about it there. Appallingly, the government of the United States, nor many, perhaps most other Western governments, including tragically, the government of Israel, do not actually recognize the Armenian genocide because to do so would be to alienate Turkey, which, of course, is a NATO country, despite the fact that Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the current strongman dictator, is, how shall we say this, um, not exactly a a friendly figure for kind of Western pro-democracy, civil libertarian types. But it's actually worse than that for Armenia because they were genocided by the Turks a century ago. They have horrible relations with their Western neighbor. They have even worse relations with their Eastern neighbor, Azerbaijan, where there had been intermittent hostilities ever since the fall of the Soviet Union itself in 1991. So both Armenia and Azerbaijan were former Soviet satellite republics. 
They have both tried to build themselves up in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union. Azerbaijan has had a, a much easier time of doing that for the very simple reason that they have a ton of oil money. Baku, which is the capital of Azerbaijan, sitting there on the Caspian Sea, is a very sleek, modern city. They host a Formula One race, kind of all the accoutrements that would that would kind of come to a very modern city in that part of the world. I've never been to Baku, but it kind of looks like almost like a Dubai or Doha, Qatar-esque city from afar. Yerevan, which is the capital of Armenia, which is where I stayed for four nights there, Yerevan has really had less luck. And they've had less luck partially due to natural resources and partially just, again, due to the geopolitics of the region. So because they are hated by the Turks on their west and the Azeris on their east, and Azerbaijan and Armenia have been sparring for 30 years now over disputed territory that is referred to by the international community as Nagorno-Karabakh. In Armenia, it's referred to as Artsakh. This is disputed territory that is recognized by most in the international community as belonging to Azerbaijan. And if you look on a map, you can you can you know, you'll see for yourself that it does look like it's part of Azerbaijan. The issue is that Nagorno-Karabakh is ethnically speaking like 95 plus percent Armenian Christian. So it's somewhat of an exclave of Armenians under the borders of Azerbaijan which is currently ruled by a strongman by the name of Ilyov, who repeatedly threatens ethnic cleansing in Nagorno-Karabakh. Worse, in 2020, in the second of the two Nagorno-Karabakh wars, Azerbaijan reacquired Nagorno-Karabakh, and they surrounded it with the Azeris. The Azeris and the Turks are actually staunch allies because they both hate the Armenians. So the Turks and the Azeris surround Nagorno-Karabakh And the Azeri government threatens with ethnic cleansing of the 130,000 Christians there on a basically daily basis. And there are still shots fired. This past September, in the town of Jermuk, on the Armenian-Azeri border, there were shots fired from the Azeris across the border right near Nagorno-Karabakh. I know because I was there. On our trip, we went to the town of Jermuk. We had this amazing experience where we kind of went into these rugged Jeeps where they deflated the tire pressure. We went off-roading up to a mountaintop, a hillside, beautiful spa town. There's pristine mineral water. There's a, there's a ski resort. Really beautiful town there on the Armenian-Azeri border. And we were with Armenian soldiers in the camouflage with binoculars looking out into the distance. I saw the bullet holes in a church that was shot from the Azeris from the mountaintop this past September. So this is, this is a live conflict zone. People don't talk about this. You know, conflicts in that region that get a lot of attention would be the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, maybe a couple of others. But the Armenian-Azeri conflict is a very, very live, live conflict. And I think the purpose of this trip primarily was to show to the Armenian government that Philo's project, which represents some prominent influential Christians, including former Kansas governor and senator Sam Brownback, who I sat next to for large swaths of the trip, really enjoyed chatting with Sam on this trip. The point of this trip was kind of showed to the Armenians that the U.S. Christian community and also some Jews like myself were there to lend them some humanitarian succor, some, some moral support, if nothing else. Here's where it gets ridiculously complicated. It gets ridiculously complicated because the geopolitics of that, of that part of the world are just utterly insane. So again, Armenia is hated by its neighbor to its west, Turkey, and its neighbor to its east, Azerbaijan. Because of that, they are forced to rely almost exclusively 
on Russia and Iran, which are not exactly the leading beacons, shall we say, <laughs> of a just and righteous country. Iran, one of the most evil countries in the world. Russia has three military bases in Armenia. In fact, when I was at the Armenian Genocide Museum in Yerevan this past Thursday, when I got out, you could hear this hypersonic jet flying by. I asked my buddy who was also on the trip what that was. He said it was a Russian warplane. <laughs> and because of that, Israel actually sides with Turkey and Azerbaijan for sheer reasons of realpolitik. Israel gets 40% of its petroleum from Azerbaijan. They therefore supply the Azeris with weapons. So the whole thing is just a total mess when it comes to, to geopolitics. And the case for Armenia, I think, is most compelling for kind of liberal humanitarians, moralistic neoconservatives, and just religious Christians, those who kind of feel kind of a moral values-based connection to Armenia. And it's true, the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh is terrible. And, and I'm happy to be in a position where I can now kind of sound the alarm on it because it, it is absolutely true that we need to do whatever it is we can to prevent 130,000 Christians there from being wiped out. It, it, it is appalling that a civilization, Armenia, that lost one and a half million to a Turkish genocide a century ago is still facing threats of this magnitude today. On the other hand, for those of us who approach foreign policy with a very kind of level, emotionally detached, realist, America first perspective like myself, I'm not sold on fully allying with a small country, Armenia, that is basically a Russian satrapy and a close ally of the Iranian regime. Now, the purpose of this trip as well, in addition to what I said, was to try to kind of meet with officials, and we met with the president, the defense minister, the foreign minister, to try to realign them away from Russia and Iran a little bit, at least a little closer towards Israel and the United States. I think how successful we were, to put it politely, remains to be determined. But if nothing else, it was just a really fascinating opportunity to get to a country that I have never been to and probably will never go back to again. It didn't make me want to go to Baku, Azerbaijan to hear the other side of this conflict. I suspect that there is another side beyond what I heard. But again, very grateful to the Philos Project for this opportunity. Very cool to be there. Again, it's a part of the world that does not get a ton of attention. But be on the lookout for the Philos Project and their group that they are forming called Christians for Armenia. I suspect that that's going to get a lot of attention over the next couple of years. And again, it was very cool to be on that pilot trip out there to Armenia last week. After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. Which is like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.